they call me the invisible elder because I'm so seldom there, but uh, I really am one. Um, this morning, I want to share with you some verses that have just really impacted my life over the last few years. And uh, in the bulletin there, uh, you'll see one of them, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But another one has been Galatians 5.1, which says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And in the gospel, it's just a myriad of freedoms that God has given. Some of the freedoms are things he has set us free from, and some of the things are free, things he has set us free for. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is just take time to share three gifts of freedom that the gospel has given us. It's the gift of unconditional love. It's the gift of uncondi- an unconditional relationship with our Father. And then the gift of a secure Now, first, before we, before we unpack that, we need to understand what, what is happening when I become a Christian, when I decide to trust Christ, put my faith in Christ, however we want to articulate it. What's happening? And um, most of my speaking is before, uh, before college students. And so I have to ask them this question. Could Jesus have been sacrificed as a baby? And there's this kind of mumbled silence. And about half of them will say, yes, Jesus could have been sacrificed as a baby. And about half of them will say no, but they don't know why. Um, could Jesus have been sacrificed as a baby? Would that have worked? The answer is no, it wouldn't have. Because we needed more than just the forgiveness of our sins. That just puts us in a neutral place with God. We actually need his righteousness. And so Jesus had to live an obedient life that could be credited to us. And that's why he couldn't be sacrificed as a baby, because we needed his obedience. And so what I'm doing when I decide to trust Christ or become a Christian, what I'm doing is I am deciding, let me be here and God's going to be over there, okay? Just picture. I am deciding to trust in the obedient life of Christ, and I'm deciding to trust in the death of Christ on the cross in my place as the basis of my relationship with God. Never again am I deciding to trust in my behavior or my performance. Now, all of us get that. This is the piece that was not clear for me, to me for a long time. Just as, just as I am trusting in the obedient life of Christ, in the death of Christ, is the basis of my relationship with God and not my performance. You know what? God is trusting in the obedient life of Christ and in the death of Christ as the basis of his relationship with me. Never again is he looking to my performance as the basis of his relationship with me. And so that means two things, that I have God's unconditional love and I have his unconditional relationship. Never again are those two things dependent upon my performance and my behavior. Because if they are, if, my, if his love for me 
and his relationship for me are dependent upon my behavior, then the cross didn't work. And what we're doing then is we're substituting our performance and our behavior for the work of Christ. Now, important principle that what is true or what is true vertically in terms of my relationship with God is always a reflection of what is true horizontally in our relationships with each other. Okay? That you can't separate them. They're bound together. For example, uh, if you have your Bibles, go over to the book of 1 John. Okay. If you have if you have the right Bible, it's page thousand twenty-two. Okay. Who has the right Bible? Anybody? <laughs> okay. So you think how many how many commands are there in the New Testament? Now, if you Google that question, you'll get answers from one. There's one command in the New Testament all the way up to about 486 or so. And then you have answers every place in between. Well, I, I tend strongly to the lower end. And if you look in 1 John 3, verse 23, it says, and this is his commandment. So it's singular, one commandment. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So one commandment, two inseparable parts that you can't pull apart. Okay. Now I'll go over to chapter 4 and look at verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. What were these people trying to do? They were trying to take the one inseparable, inseparable commandment to love God and to love each other, and they were trying to separate it. And they were saying, you know what we can do? We can separate this. I, I can love God, but I just have a little problem with you. Okay. And John says you can't do that. If you say all is well in our vertical relationship with God, but things are not well between us as believers. You know what God calls you and me? A liar. See, they're inseparable. And so, as we talk about our unconditional love with our Father and our unconditional relationship with God, what's true here should be true between us as believers. So always keep that in mind, okay? Now, our relationship with God and his with me, his with us, is no longer dependent upon our performance and our behavior, okay? So we can stop trying to be acceptable to God because we already are. See, and we can stop trying to be close to God 
because we already are. That's not something we have to strive for. And a lot of times, we take what we think is his absence and his distance. It's really our inattentiveness. He's not gone any place and neither have we. We're just not paying attention. So our closeness to God is not dependent upon our behavior. Our closeness to God is dependent upon the behavior of Christ. See, and that behavior was credited to my account. That's for me. And this, this is titanic. This is huge. I mean, this, this changes everything for us. And so we don't live every day so that God will love us. We live the way we do every day because God already loves us. Okay, we don't live the way we do so that God will love us. We live the way we do because he already loves us. And so our struggle for God's affection is over. And we didn't win it. It was won for us at the cross. But the struggle for his affection is over. And striving for God's love every day and striving for his affection is absolutely exhausting. And when we discover that we don't have to strive for it anymore, we find a rest that we've never experienced before. There's a rest in serving God and a rest in living that's brand new for us. Now, the passage for this morning, if you have your Bibles, let's go over to John 15. This is a passage that has been very meaningful to me, starting at verse 9. John 15, verse 9. Jesus is speaking here. And he says, as the Father has loved me, as the Father has loved me. Now, Jeff went to seminary just a few years ago. I went to seminary right after the close of the Civil War. So I knew, when I say I knew a little Greek once, that was a long time ago, okay? But I did know a little Greek once, but he moved. Um, but um, the Greek grammar in this verse is very important. As the Father has loved me, okay? It's in a tense in the, in the Greek called the aorist. And English uses verbs one way, and Greeks use the, verb, the verbs another way. In English, we use verbs to describe when something happened, past, present, future, basically. In the Greek language, in which this is being written, they use the verb system to describe not so much the timing, but more the type of action. And that's what's going on here when Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, according to John Stott, it's, it's Jesus is saying, the Father's love for me is 100% complete. It's completed action. It's done. And so what Jesus is saying is there's nothing that he can do to make God his Father love him more 
then he already loves them. And what he's also saying, because God's love for his, him is complete, that there's nothing theoretically he could do to make his father love him less. Okay? God's love for him was complete. And then Jesus goes on and he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And Jesus uses the same grammar there. And so what he is saying is, my love for you is 100% complete. It's done. It is a done deal. In other words, there is not one thing that you and I can do to make God love us more than he already loves us in Christ Jesus. Okay? Nor is there anything we can do to make him love us less. It's complete. Another way to say this, and this sounds strange, but it's still very true. God doesn't love us less when we resist temptation. He doesn't, no, he doesn't love us more when we resist temptation. He doesn't love us less when we give in. Doesn't that sound strange? But it's true. See, if God's love for us goes up and down according to our behavior, then our relationship with God is still dependent upon me and not on Jesus. And I'm still under the law. Now, just because God's love for us doesn't change, that's not permission to sin. Don't, don't hear that, okay? So am I saying that God loves us in our sin? Absolutely. That's the miracle of the gospel. Even before we trusted Christ, he loved us. But God showed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so he's crazy about us. And so there's nothing that you and I can do today to make God love us more than he already loves us. Brennan Manning, um, in his book, Abba's Child, used this, this phrase quite a number of times. I think it was his life message. He says, God loves you just as you are, not as you should be. God loves you just as you are, not as you should be. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, wrote this. There's a tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. It's based at every point on his prior knowledge of the worst about me. So that no discovery can now disillusion him about me. Okay. Larry Crabb puts it in slightly more contemporary language. In his book, Soul Talk, he says this, I can come to the Father like this, feeling as dirty as a pig in mud, and he's still glad to see me. I can come to the Father feeling as dirty as a pig in the mud, and he's still glad to see me. So the principle is this, God's love for us only comes as a gift. It can never be earned. 
we can never perform for it. It's always an unconditional gift. Okay? So back to John 15. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you with this unconditional, completed love. And then he says, abide in my love. And I remember reading that and going, hold it, I thought it was complete. Now he seems to be saying that I can move in and out of my experience of it somehow. And I thought, okay, well, how do I abide in it? And then you go on and read verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide. There's so many, so many of us were taught at some point that the way we get God to love us is to obey. In other words, God's love is dependent upon my performance and my obedience. That's how we earn God's love. That's anti-gospel. He says, my love for you as a believer is complete. Now I want you to experience it. And what he is saying is, how you experience it is by obedience. See, obedience does not earn us God's love. Obedience enables us to experience the love he already has for us. So obedience never earns us anything. Obedience is always about experiencing. Nor do I obey. I don't obey so that God will love me. And I can't let obedience become my primary motivation for God blessing me. Okay. I obey not so much for God to bless me, but simply the experience of God himself for the reality of God. See, we don't want to be preoccupied with the fruits of our relationship with God or of knowing God. Let's just be preoccupied with the incredible reality of knowing God. And so I wonder, I wonder if the glory of God is in his person. Okay? not in his provisions. So, principle, obedience is never about earning. It's always about experiencing. And then he says, these things, he goes on in John 15 here, he says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He says, these things I've spoken to you. And what's he just spoken? Well, he's just said, folks, my love for you is 100% complete. There's nothing you can do to change that. You can't earn more of it. You've got it. And he says, 
I've said this to you that my joy that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See what if what if we think we've got to earn God's love every day? And so you go to bed at night and you put your head on the pillow and you think, Well, how'd I do today? And you think back through the day. Well, let's see. I didn't help Sue make the bed. And I didn't put the dishes in the dishwasher. And I kicked the dog on the way out the door. And I tried to run over the neighbor's cats. And I felt like denting the car of the lady that pulled in front of me. And on and on and on. And you go to bed at night and you think, hmm, didn't do very well today. God must be frowning at me. And so what do you say to yourself? Tomorrow I will try harder. And so I help make the bed and I put the dishes in the dishwasher and I pet the dog on the way out the door, but I still try to run over the neighbor's cats. That's the daily deal no matter what. Still try to run over the cats. And then, you know, you think through the day and there's other low points and you go to bed at night, phooey. Tomorrow I have to work harder. And that's an endless treadmill that you'll never get off. And it's exhausting. And it'll kill you. See, if you, if you and I could earn God's love and approval by trying harder, Jesus did not need to go to the cross. We can't do it. And so, when I focus on the good news of the gospel, that is why I can go to bed every night with joy. Because I know that God is not frowning at me. He's not looking at my performance as the basis of how much he loves me. He's head over heels in love with me, not because of what I did today, but because he's looking at me through Christ. And he sees Christ's obedience. Now, an awful lot of Christians will push back against this idea of an unconditional relationship. And one of the illustrations I, I hear a lot is, well, Bill, it, it's, it's, isn't it like a father and a son? Um, you know, well, let me use Jeff as an illustration. Okay? His father, there's son. You know that the dad really loves the son, and you have a close relationship, but then he's a young teenager, and he does something really stupid. Now, Jeff never did, but so this is all theoretical, okay? Um, and people say, well, the father still loves the son, but the relationship is broken. Well, I have a theological word for that. Baloney. See, what we're doing is we're taking the relationship between a human father and a human son, and we're applying it to God. So we're doing exactly the wrong thing. We ought to take what is the relationship between God the Father and his son and apply it to how we should relate to our children. 
When we sin, the relationship is not broken. Otherwise, we have a conditional relationship. And that's depressing. That's discouraging. That's not good news. Okay? Now, a lot of pushback against this idea of an unconditional relationship. And I just jot down a few reasons here. One of the reasons is it eliminates our ego. It eliminates taking credit. We love to take credit for our relationship with God. You know, and you think, through, boy, I, I, I have a better relationship with God than Fritz over here because, boy, I have been so faithful in my quiet time. And I, I'm more faithful at church. And, you know, and we love credit for our relationship. But the gospel always eliminates the taking of credit and boasting. You go over to Romans 3, uh, chapter 1, yeah, chapter 3. And in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul has been talking about how everybody sins. In chapter 2, he talks about how the Jews and the moralists have sinned. Chapter 3, he begins to sum it up. Everybody has sinned. And then in verse 21, he makes the most incredible comment. I mean, the hair on the Jew's neck probably stood on end when they heard him say this. He says, but now the righteousness of God. There is a right relationship with God that makes everything else right. There is a right relationship with God that has been manifested apart from the law. And Jesus just contradicted a couple thousand years of teaching. There's a right relationship with God that has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how the Jews responded to that? But then he goes down to verse 27 because he's anticipating a question. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of taking credit for my relationship with God? He says, it's excluded. It's gone. See, the gospel always eliminates us taking credit for our relationship with God. The relationship is an unconditional gift. Related to that, we love to take responsibility. We not only like to take credit for our relationship with God, we like to take responsibility for it. The sad thing is, the more responsibility that you and I take for our relationship with God, the more we push back against the grace of God. Okay, the more responsibility we take, the more we resist the grace of God that relationship and then another reason that that it's hard to comprehend this unconditional relationship it it feels it feels like that if I'm this guilty it must require something of me it's got to require something of me but again that's the miracle of the gospel Jesus took it all Grace, grace never feels like it costs us enough. 
So let me summarize real quickly here. When I come to Christ, I have the free gift of unconditional love. I have an unconditional relationship. And then one more thing. I am given an unconditional identity. And there's a number of great verses in the New Testament on this. Where I love to go is the end of Romans 7 and the beginning of Romans 8. In Romans 7, Paul's talking here as a mature believer. And he's looking at his life and he's saying, Oh, nuts. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't do, I, I want to do. And he says... I find it a principle of life that whenever I want to do right, sin is always laying close at hand. And then, so he's thinking about his day and all the stuff he didn't want to do that he did and all the stuff he did he didn't want to do, however that is. And he, he comes to this conclusion about himself at the end of the day. Wretched man that I am. That's how he feels. Now, we don't use that word wretched very much anymore. We have, we have other words like, I'm dirty. I'm broken. I don't deserve to be loved. I don't deserve to live. And then there's all kinds of symptoms that go with this type of thinking. Wretched man that I am. I, I, boy, I just pile of dirt today. I always sit here and eat worms. And it can lead us to depression. Sometimes it leads so many people to drugs just as a way to escape how they feel about themselves. For a lot of young people and teenagers, it might lead to cutting. It can lead to eating disorders, all kinds of of behaviors. Because these behaviors reflect how we think about ourselves. Boy, I... I was awful today. God can't be happy with me. He's got to be frowning. He's got to be frustrated. And so we end our day living in guilt and shame. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, there were two results of their sin. There was guilt and there was shame. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is there's something wrong with me. And Jesus took both of those to the cross. He took both our guilt to the cross and he took our shame to the cross. And he took our shame to the cross by giving us a new identity. And that's why Paul goes on here in Romans 7. He says, wretched man that I am. And then there's Romans 8.1. And that chapter division is the worst chapter division in the New Testament. So just take your pen or pencil and cross it out. Okay? And it's not there. So he he concludes chapter 7 and says, Wretched man that I am. And then he says, But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then you think, what's condemnation? Condemnation is being given an identity that's based on your performance. You stole, there's your behavior and your performance, therefore you are a thief. There's your identity. Okay? So condemnation is being given an identity based on your behavior. 
young teenage boy comes home from high school with a very colorful report card full of red Fs. There's his performance and his behavior. And dad says, you are a failure. And I think of how many dorm rooms I have sat in and listened to young guys repeat those words they heard from their dad. They're just etched up here. You are a failure. Now let me give you another one. As a believer, you sin, therefore you are a sinner. True or false? I think it's a trick question. <laughs> First part's true. As believers, we sin. That was Paul in Romans 7. He says, the more I realize I'm not supposed to covet, I can't stop doing it. Um, but we sin. But the second part, I sin, therefore I am a sinner, is not true. No place in the New Testament is a believer ever called or given the identity of a sinner. But 60 times you're given the identity of a saint. No place is a believer ever given the identity of a sinner. 60 times you're called saints. So we're not sinners trying to become somebody different and trying to become a saint by our behavior. We can't do that. Cats can't become dogs. A world would be better if they could, but they can't. Um, I can't change my DNA. I'm not a sinner trying to become a saint. I am a saint that still happens to sin because I still have my flesh in which sin dwells. But God has given me a new identity because he's... He's credited to me the obedience of Christ. He's put in me his righteousness with my new heart and my new nature. And that's who I am. And my behavior will never change it. If I see God as my condemner, I will never go to God to heal me. And on the horizontal, remember how we can't separate the two? If I see you as somebody who condemns me based on my behavior, I will never come to you for healing. So three freedoms, three gifts of the gospel we get. We get unconditional love. We get an unconditional relationship. And we get an unconditional identity. You're saints. Okay? Let me pray for us. And then we'll sing. Father, thank you that your love is not something we have to earn. That would be terrible news. But thank you on the basis of the life and death of Christ on the cross that your love for us is complete. And by walking in your ways and by trusting you, we can experience that every day of our life. 
And Father, thank you too that our relationship with you is not conditioned on our behavior. And thank you that our behavior in the gospel never creates our identity. And we can give up our opinions about ourselves and trust that what you say about us is really true. Father, this morning, if there's been any untruth, I pray it would be like water on sand and we could never recover it. But our Father in heaven, I pray that if there has been truth from your word through your spirit, that we would trust it and we would find you transforming our lives because we trust you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.